Jesus called Simon and Andrew to leave their fishing nets and to follow him. And so they left their nets and their boats behind, and they followed Jesus, and they became saints. Jesus called Matthew to leave his tax collector's booth and follow him. And Matthew left his excise booth, and he left behind his lucrative career, and he followed Jesus. And he became a saint. Jesus calls this rich young man, give up your riches, give to the poor, and then to follow him. And this man goes away sad because he has many possessions. And today we don't even know his name. I think this is one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. I mean, think about it. This guy seems like he's got everything going for him, right? He's young. He's rich. He's got moral virtue. He's a good guy. He's a good man. And he's wise because he has the wisdom to seek out Jesus, to come to Jesus, and to ask him the most important question that any of us could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He was wise, because with everything that he had, all the good things that he had in life, something in him knew that this was not enough. That all my riches, all my wealth is not sufficient. There's got to be more. So he's asking the right question. And more than that, he's asking the exact right person. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit life? But when Jesus tells him, the only thing you need to do is to sell what you have, give it to the poor and follow me, the man goes away sad because he can't do it. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It can be very tempting for us, I think, to kind of gloss over this passage and explain it away, especially if we're sitting on comfortable bank accounts. Because owning wealth isn't bad in and of itself, right? The commandment against stealing presupposes that we have a right to private property. That's why it's wrong to take someone else's private property. And we have a moral obligation that the scriptures uphold to take care of ourselves and to care for our families. That's true. And as St. Paul says, the laborer deserves his wages, so earning money is not bad. There's nothing wrong with any of this. All of that is true. But St. Paul also says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And at the end of the day, we can't ignore the fact that Jesus has some very harsh things to say to those who are rich. You can summarize everything that Jesus has to say about the rich with it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And you can summarize everything Jesus says about the poor with blessed are the poor. Jesus offers the poor a blessing and he offers the rich a warning. And we have to take that seriously. So even though being rich might not be sinful, it's spiritually dangerous. And so we should ask, why? Why would that be? 
Let's look at this rich young man and, and analyze what his mistake is here, right? Because Jesus is offering him literally the deal of a lifetime. The deal of a lifetime. Give up all of your earthly treasure and I will give you heavenly treasure. Because all the earthly treasure in the world, it can only make you happy for a limited time. It can only offer you limited happiness. I'm sure this young man enjoyed his earthly treasure, but for how long? Right? How long did he enjoy it? He's young, so maybe 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. But how long is that compared to eternity? And he knows that that enjoyment, that happiness that his treasure gives him will run out. That's why he's asking, what can I do to gain eternal life? And so now here's Jesus offering him the only thing, the only thing that would make him happy forever. But the man turns it down because he chooses to keep his small, finite, earthly treasure instead. And it seems like such a foolish thing to do. Why would he do that? But that's exactly what we do when we sin. That's what we do when we sin. Because all sin involves placing a greater value on a lesser good than, than on a greater good in one form or another. We're valuing a lesser good above a greater good. And that's because all sin involves choosing something else over God. And God is the greatest good. As Jesus says in this passage, only God is good. God is the source of all goodness. Everything else that's good borrows that goodness from God, is reflecting the goodness of God. But God is goodness. So when we choose anything over God, we're choosing a lesser good over a greater good. When we say, I don't need God to make me happy because I have money to make me happy, we've turned money into our God. And you cannot worship God and money. Right? We've turned money into our God. And it's very tempting to do this, and I think this explains why Jesus is particularly harsh in his warnings to the rich. Because whatever it is you think you need to make you happy, if you have enough money, you can usually get it. So money's very tempting. We can put a lot of our, our trust and our, our reliance for happiness on money if we have enough of it. But money is good only as a means to an end. It's good only in, in as much as it helps us to serve God and it helps us to serve each other. That's the purpose of money. But when we make money into an end in itself, we invert the equation. And we end up using people as a means to an end. And we barely think about God at all, right? Because we've made money into our God. We no longer have a need for God. But it's the same thing with all sin. All sin works the same way. Right? Maybe we say, I don't need God to make me happy. I have money to make me happy. But maybe for you, it's not money. Maybe greed has no appeal to you. We all have our favorite sins. Maybe you say, I don't need God to make me happy. I have sex. I don't need God to make me happy. I have alcohol. I have food. I have Netflix. Right? I don't need God to make me happy. I've got my career. My career makes me happy. I have my charitable foundation. I have my good deeds. Look at all the good work that I'm doing. This makes me happy. Or I don't need God to make me happy. I have my self-righteousness. I have my pride. We can choose many things over God, even good things. And all of these things might make us happy for a time, but at some point, at some point, 
we're going to have to let them go. And that's the meaning of Jesus' metaphor here about the camel passing through the eye of a needle. That might seem like a really strange image if we try and envision it literally. A camel passing through the eye of a needle? Where did you get that one from, Lord? That's a weird image. But it would have been familiar to anybody who was a visitor to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem for a little bit. If you go to Jerusalem, like a lot of ancient cities, it's surrounded by high walls for protection. And there are gates in the walls that people could pass through at all the major entrances. But to protect the city at night, they'd close the gates. And then if you got to Jerusalem after the gates were closed, the gates had these smaller doors in them that they would open to let you, let you through. And one of these doors in particular, because it was so narrow, was called the Eye of the Needle. Remember Jesus talking about passing through that narrow gate? Jerusalem is used often in the scriptures as an image for heaven. So to enter into the heavenly city, you have to pass through that narrow gate. And that eye of a needle was so narrow that a camel who was laden with all of its goods couldn't fit through. People use camels as beasts of burden because they're really strong and they can go a long way in the desert. So merchants would load them up with all of their goods that they had to sell. And if a merchant would arrive at Jerusalem after the gates were closed, he couldn't get all of his stuff in through that little narrow gate. The only way to get it in was to take it off the camel haul it in by hand, and then when the camel was stripped of all of the baggage that it was carrying, then the camel could fit in through that narrow gate. So you see, it is possible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle if it unburdens itself first. And this is what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us that to fit through that narrow gate that we have to pass through on our way to heaven, we need to unburden of our, ourselves. We need to let go of whatever lesser good it is that we're clinging on to so that we can embrace that greater good that he has to offer, that he wants to give us. But we can't reach out and take what Jesus is giving us if we're holding on to these little things that we carry. And it might not necessarily be wealth. C.S. Lewis has a, a beautiful allegory that he's written about this called the great divorce. The great divorce. And the divorce in this being referenced by the title here is the divorce or the separation between heaven and hell. These two irreconcilable realities that we all have to choose between at some point. Right? So in this book, the narrator is in the afterlife. And the afterlife is described as this gray city where these ghosts live and nothing really happens there right? and the longer you live there the farther apart you get from everybody else and you're just kind of searching around for something it's this boring city but every now and then a bus comes and the bus takes a group up out of the city to this beautiful grassy plain leading up to this majestic mountain and if the ghosts will walk across that plain and walk up that mountain, they'll become solid again. They'll become solid. So the mountain is heaven. And anybody who wants to gets to go. Anybody who wants to can go. The only catch is you got to let go of anything you have that doesn't belong up there on that mountain. You've got to let go of anything you have that is keeping you attached to that dead gray city below. And most of them can't do it. 
For some, it is greed. There's one ghost in the story who he can only see heaven in terms of potential profit. He sees all the beautiful things of heaven, and he thinks, oh, the people down in the city are going to go crazy for that. I can sell it. I could, I'll be so rich. And all he can think of is, how can I get, take these beautiful things back down there and sell them? I've got to go back down there to the city. I've got to establish my sales network, set up some offices, you know. He can't, he can't see the greater picture because all he's concerned with is, I have to make a profit. How can I make a profit off of this? But other ghosts cling to different things. There's one ghost that can't let go of his cynicism. There's one that that can't let go of his need to be considered better than everybody else, at least to think of himself as better than everybody else. And some of the things that these ghosts cling to might surprise you. There's a mother who lost her young son, and she can't let go of her grief. Her grief has become what defines her. There's a theologian who can't get past his desire to have academic knowledge of God, to be an expert about God. And to maintain that, he has to keep God at a distance so he can study him objectively. So he refuses to let go of that. There's a self-conscious ghost that can't let go of her own self-image. She's embarrassed for people to see her so transparent that she misses out on the chance to become solid again. Each of the figures in C.S. Lewis's story is clinging on to something, some little treasure, some little aspect of themselves that they value so much that they're willing to condemn themselves to an eternity of misery rather than let it go. And it's a sad story in a way because as you're reading it, it's frustrating. You want to shout at these characters and say, just get over yourself. Just let it go. Just get over it. Can't you see? God wants to give you everything. So it's a sad story to see them not able to do that. But it's also a hopeful story because you know they don't have to make that choice. It doesn't have to end that way for them. They all have a choice. If the theologian had just let go of his desire to be an expert about God, he could have known God personally fallen in love with him. If that grieving mother had just let go of her grief as her defining identity, she would have been reunited with her son that she lost. If the man who just absolutely had to think about himself as better than others all the time, if he had let go of that, he would have become the best version of himself, his perfect self. And if that man who couldn't see heaven as anything but a means to gain profit, had just let go of his desire for profit, he would have gained the most valuable treasure of all. Each of us has that same choice that Jesus gives the rich young man. Let go of what you're carrying and follow me. Let go of what you're carrying and follow me. That's the big thing. That's the point of the great divorce. That's the point about Jesus' warning about the camel passing through the eye of the needle. It's not impossible to enter through that narrow gate. You just have to unburden your camel. You have to let go of all your stuff. So the lesson of the rich young man, it's a sad passage in the Gospels, but it's an opportunity for each of us to reflect, to really reflect on ourselves. What are you clinging on to? What are you clinging to? What is that treasure in your life, whether it's material wealth or something else, 
that you just can't let go of? What in your life, in your heart, is so important that you would refuse to give it up even if Jesus was standing right in front of you and offering you heaven in return? Think about whatever that is. And if you find yourself saying, hesitating a little bit, I'm not sure I can give that up, Lord. I'm not sure I'm ready to give that up yet. That's precisely what you need to let go of to become poor in spirit. That's what you need to let go of to see God. Jesus is our preeminent example here of true poverty because he didn't even consider divinity something to be grasped, as St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians. He let go of everything in becoming man. And in his life as a man, he was poor. He knew poverty. But even in his poverty, there was nothing that he had that he wasn't willing to let go of in service to the Father's will and in service to his love for us. That's why at the end of his life, he was stripped even of his garment. The only thing he carried with him on the road to Calvary was his cross. And even that he gave up. He had to give it to Simon of Cyrene to carry for him. And at the very end, the last thing that Jesus let go of was his, himself when he commended his spirit to God. And at that moment when he let go of everything, that's when he gained everything. He gave us himself as a model to follow. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He's making us the same offer that he made the rich young man. Whatever treasure it is you're clinging on to in this life, let it go. Let it go. Unburden yourself. Be poor in spirit. And then everything will be yours.